From the Maximum Fun Network, this is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Louis Kessenberg wasn't a good man. He cursed and he stole. He would drink and get into moods and then get into fights. He beat his wife. He was cruel. Louis Kessenberg wasn't a good man. But he didn't eat those people. In May of 1846, a wagon train carried 87 pioneers west from Independence, Missouri, bound for the Sierras in the Sacramento River Valley beyond. There were nine families in the caravan, but I only need you to see two. The Kessebergs, the father, Louis, a German immigrant, 30 years old, six feet and strong, holding the reins at the front of a covered wagon. His wife, 10 years younger, huddled in the back with their infant son and three-year-old daughter. And the Donners, 12 members in all, led by the father, George, his wife, Tamsin, his brother, his brother's wife, and eight children. The oldest was 13. The youngest, Eliza, was two. See her, wrapped in a blanket and in her mother's arms, as the woman tries to keep the little girl dry and warm as a sudden storm sweeps across the prairie. See little Eliza learning how to run and to jump and to speak in sentences, all while traveling night after day, month after month, across the North American continent. One out of eight children, eight mouths to feed, but eight extra bodies, at least the older ones, to help push and to clear the rocks that block their wagons and slow them all down. That is what did the Donner Party in. They were too slow. And that's why so many of them died in the winter of 1845, 1846. Though others died before they even got to the mountain pass that would someday bear the party's name. They lost one to tuberculosis, three to accidents. Louis Kesselberg kicked an old man who worked for him out of his wagon, forced him to walk, and the walking killed him. Louis Kesselberg wasn't a good man. Those deaths slowed them down. There were reasons they were too slow. Reasons they arrived at the mountain pass at the end of October, when the snow began to fall. Between the 1st of November, 1846, and the 1st of May the following year, 36 members of the Donner Party died. Some from the cold, some from injuries or illnesses for which there was no care, others from starvation. One, a 12-year-old boy, died right after being rescued from overeating. Others died in ways that have since been lost in the snow. But 46 people came out of the woods. 46 people survived to go on and go off and mourn their dead and build homes and find work and live out the rest of their lives. But I only need you to see two. Eliza Donner was three years old when she was rescued from the mountain. She was taken from her parents who let her go because they were told there was another rescue party arriving soon. She and her two half-sisters, both in their early teens, were brought to a fort run by the United States Army, and they waited there for their parents, who were expected any day. But days turned to weeks, and winter turned to spring. And then, one evening, just before bedtime, Eliza heard a knock, and she looked up from where she was playing on the dirt floor of their adobe hut. Two bearded men with sad eyes removed their hats, and whispered to Eliza's big sister in the doorway. And then her big sister started to cry. 
The people at the fort, especially the women, were kind, or they tried to be anyway. They told her how sad they felt for her, how much better it would have been for her to have died up there with her parents, rather than live without them. They'd reprimand their children for wanting to play with her. She was three. Later, as an adult, she remembered running off to be alone among the wildflowers, to get away, she wrote, from the torturing sympathy. But she would never be able to run far enough. She would never be able to step beyond the shadow cast by the events of that winter. Because although she must have remembered very little of what happened to her on the trail, flickering faces, a feeling of her mother's lips on her cheek, of her father's hand in her hair, she heard about it over and over as she grew up and as she grew old. You still hear it now, 160 years later. You don't hear the details, you don't remember the whole thing. Because it was a long time ago, and they weren't your parents. You know they got stuck in the snow, some of them starved, and some of them survived because they ate the ones who did. It's the Donner Party. That's why you've heard of it at all. And maybe you've heard recently that historians and forensic scientists and whoever now think that no one ate anyone up there that the country's most famous cannibals were not cannibals at all. That thrown on top of the horror of nearly starving the woods, of surviving when those you loved did not, people made up stories that made everything seem even more horrible. And those stories hovered around Eliza like a halo of mayflies. They preceded her into every room she entered for the rest of her life. She was the girl whose parents died. She was the girl whose parents were eaten. She was the girl whose parents were eaten by Louis Kesselberg. Louis Kesselberg was the last person out of the woods. His infant son had died there in January. His wife and their own three-year-old girl were rescued in February. And when he was rescued, 12 weeks later, he learned two things. His daughter had not survived the trip to safety, and people now called him Kesselberg the Cannibal. This story had preceded him. It went like this. When Eliza Donner's parents let her go off with the men, there was another set of men falling right behind. The Donners would only need to hang on for a few days, two weeks at the most. But then more snow fell, and the rescuers had to turn back. When men finally came again, it was spring, and all that they found in their camp were the Donners' bones, and, sorry about this, their organs, cooking in a pot over a fire a fire lit by Louis Kesselberg, who had done something much worse than merely resorting to cannibalism. He had jump-started the process by killing Mrs. Donner, and he had also stolen all their money, about $6,000. That was the story that came down the mountain. There was no proof. It didn't matter. He sued for defamation and won. It didn't matter. Louis Kesselberg was not a good man. He beat his wife. Everyone knew it. He drank, he got into fights. He made that old man walk in the desert and the walking killed him. He was just the kind of man who would kill poor little Eliza Donner's mother. He was Kesselberg the cannibal, everywhere he went, for the rest of his life. When he would try to get a job. When he would try to sit quietly at the end of the bar and drink a beer. Kids threw rocks at him as he walked down the street. Men would throw drinks at him. They'd throw punches. And it is hard to be a good man when you are Kesselberg the cannibal. He'd punch back. And he cheated in business, 
He took on aliases and tried to get loans, which is illegal, if understandable. He would try to disappear, to escape the shadow cast by the horrible things that he swore he never did, and cast by the real regrets, the real wrongs, that he had piled up over this life of his, when he hadn't been a good man. So he would move his family, and take on a new identity, and start a new business and find his feet, until someone would find out that he was the man who had killed and eaten Eliza Donner's mother. And then it would all fall apart again. In March of 1879, Eliza Donner heard a knock. She got up from her couch and crossed the parlor of her elegant home in San Jose. There was yet another writer at the door. They came by now and then. They were working on books. They were interviewing survivors. They needed to follow up on something she'd said to someone else some other time. She didn't mind. She was one of them. Eliza Donner spent her adult life researching the history of the Donner Party and trying to understand what happened during that winter that she could barely remember. So when yet another man came to the door wanting to ask her about those days and to tell her what he learned in his research, there wasn't anything he could tell her that would surprise her. She had read all the same books. She had talked to all the same people. And none of them could tell her what she wanted to know. None of them could tell her what really happened to her parents. There was only one man who could. And he never talked to anyone. And he hadn't been seen in years. And he was probably dead. And so when this man in her living room said he could finally prove once and for all that Kesselberg had killed her mother, Eliza nodded politely. She sipped her tea. But when he said he'd found Kesselberg, and he was going to confront the monster who had murdered her mother, who had eaten her parents, she looked up, and she said she wanted to go with him. Two months later, Eliza Donner knocked on Kesselberg the cannibal's door. He invited her in. She hadn't seen him in 32 years, and he hadn't seen her since she was a toddler. Louis Kesselberg told Eliza Donner that he was not a good man, but he was not the bad man people said he was. He had admired her parents. He told her he tried to help her mother but could not. And when she knew she would die, she asked him to bury her money by a tree and then bring it to her children when the winter thawed. And he did. But there were many trees and there was a lot of snow. And he couldn't find it again. And when the rescuers found him near death, they didn't ask if there was anyone else alive. They didn't ask how they could help. They just asked where the money was. And when he couldn't tell them, they got mad. And they made up the story that created the character of Kesselberg the cannibal. The one he had been ever since. He fell to his knees and begged her to believe him. And she asked him to stand where God could better see him. And he rose. And she held his hands. And he asked her to believe him. And she did. Thirty years later, in 1911, Eliza Donner wrote a book about all she had learned about what happened to her family in the woods those years ago. And she wrote about that moment there in an old man's living room when two people who spent their lives as the victim and the villain in a story they did not write held each other's hand and wrote their own ending. <laughs>